Let us pray as we begin. Gracious God, be with us as we consider your word this day. We thank you for the promise of your Holy Spirit that your word would not return unto um, us void. In other words, that you are present and you ordain to speak when your word is proclaimed. And we give you thanks and ask you to minister to our hearts in ways that perhaps only you know. In Jesus' name, amen. One of my more terrifying experiences as a man in his late teens or 20s was riding in the car of a friend. The car was full of us older teenagers, and it was in the wintertime near Calgary. Uh, and we were driving from Bragg Creek to Calgary, and my friend Brad was coming up on a corner on the highway, two-lane highway, and I thought, you know, he's driving pretty fast to be approaching this corner. Either he's a really good driver or we're in trouble. Well, as it turns out, he wasn't a very good driver. And as we came up upon the corner, um, the car began to slide on the ice and it swung into the path of oncoming traffic and another car went by after we swung back into our lane. And then it swung a second time into the lane of oncoming traffic and then came back into its, our own lane when a second car came by. It did it once more for a third car, and then it spun all the way around, and we ended up on the ditch on the other side of the road. I was absolutely terrified. I was, uh, I was yelling and screaming at my friend because, in a way, I kind of saw this coming. And we had just had three near uh, collisions with oncoming cars. Fortunately, everyone was all right. Uh, but ever since then, I have been afraid to ride in a car uh, when I'm not driving. Um, my own driving is bad enough, but at least I know it. Uh, the other day, I drove uh, Andrew to go and get the, the van for the weekend retreat, and rumor has it I don't drive like a pastor. I was in a hurry, and I was driving a bit aggressively, so he might have been a bit nervous about that. And I think I do drive like a pastor. I mean, I was good for his prayer life while he was driving the car, right? He was earnest in prayer. Everything was going fine. In our psalm today, the psalmist has a near slip. He begins in verse 1 by saying uh, something like the beginning of the creed. This is something that any Israelite could say. Surely God is good to Israel, to the pure in heart. But then he says in verse 2, as for me, my feet nearly gave way. My steps were nearly spilled because I envied the braggarts, the shalom of the wicked I saw. Here the psalmist is being led astray by the lure of life on easy street. And in a few minutes, we're going to examine this psalm in a little bit more detail. But I wanted to orient us to the psalm um, that we're going to be looking at, and we'll return to it in a minute. But let's just take a second and back up and recall where we are and where we have been over the past several weeks. We have been doing a series on the book of Psalms. For a long time, we went through Matthew, and we went through it chapter by chapter, almost verse by verse. And so during this series on the Psalms, I have decided that we're going to stay by and large with the forest. We're going to look at the whole book. And we're going to look at certain features of the structure of the book. And we're also going to look at the way in which the Messiah is revealed by the Psalms structure and by its contents. 
And as I did this, I began to think about um, the reaction from um, some of my seasoned Christian friends um, who were a little bit baffled by this idea that the book of Psalms has a structure and that the Psalms are not randomly ordered. And I reminded myself to want to speak to you a little bit about this and to say that this is actually a fairly new discovery. Around 1979, Old Testament scholars began to look at the book of Psalms and they became convinced and have now arrived at a consensus that the Psalms are not arranged like strings on a pearl or like pearls on a string, but that they're purposely ordered. And so for the past month or so, we've been noticing certain features about the structure of the book of Psalms, that it's introduced by Psalms 1, and two, that the conclusion are 146 to 50, these five psalms of praise where the psalmist is taking us out on the end of the book on a high note uh, with, with a theme of great praise. Well, think about it. If Psalm 146 begins the conclusion to the psalms, then Psalm 73 occurs right in the middle. It kind of is like a fulcrum when you're sort of tracing your own spiritual pilgrimage through the book of Psalms, you come to the middle point and this, this wisdom Psalm says, hey, I hope you're following the teaching of Psalm 1, but watch out. There's something that could trip you up. You could get cynical and you could begin to look over your shoulder and notice how other people are living. Back to the big picture for a minute. The book of Psalms has five books, which as we have seen, echo in a way the, the, uh, the laws of Moses, the five books of Moses. And so in Psalm 1, when we're told to meditate upon God's Torah, God's law, the psalmist is thinking of the five books of Moses, but the editor who put the psalm at the beginning of the Psalter is aware that the book of Psalms is also a five-book structure. And so it has a way of looking both ways. And so uh, the book of Psalms is more Torah in the same way that we find in Joshua chapter 1, the beginning of the second part of the Hebrew Bible, it too commends meditation upon Torah as though the whole Bible, uh, the prophets and the Psalms are simply Torah uh, commentated on. So the whole Old Testament is one big exploration of the teaching of God, which starts with the five books of Moses. Well, as you've been able to tell, I want to look at Psalm 73 mostly, but before we look at Psalm 73, I just want to indulge for a minute on two aspects of the book of Psalms as a whole. Two further things to appreciate, and by now I, I am assuming that you found uh, an outline, this one-page um, outline. Uh, so you've got the seven pages stapled together, and then you have another thing that says sermon outline. And where I'm at is where it says two further things to appreciate about the book of Psalms as a whole. And the first is the variety of Psalms. Think about it for a minute. Think of all the different kind of Psalms that you know are in the book of Psalms. And there you'll find that there are not just Psalms of thanksgiving and praise, like we find in our hymn books, but there are also psalms of lament where someone is in anguish and someone is asking God for an explanation as to all the terrible things that are happening in his life. We have Psalm 73 and Psalm 1, which give us advice on how to live life. My point is this, is that this hymn book of ancient Israel has a much wider range of hymns, of songs, than we find in our hymn books. And the book of Psalms was, in fact, the hymn book of ancient Israel and the church 
for many, many centuries. And it was only in the past few centuries that we have devised our own hymn books that are different than the book of Psalms. And I dare say that you probably wouldn't find a church publisher who would publish a hymn book that had something like Psalm 73 in it, where the psalmist flirts with doubt, or Psalm 88, where the psalmist begins with despair and ends with despair. My friends, the point is this. In God's hymn book, which is the book of Psalms, all aspects of life come under the domain of God's reign. And if you are honestly feeling what you're feeling, whether it be good or whether it be bad, as a follower of God and of Jesus Christ, then that's okay. The book of Psalms takes up the whole realm of our emotions. It has hurting psalms. It has over-the-top psalms. It has psalms where the psalmist is questioning God. And so there's kind of this whole life, very realistic feel to the book of Psalms. Uh, I don't know whether I recommend it if you're feeling depressed or not. Uh, it might not help you, but it might help you if you read Psalm 88. Psalm 88 is the gloomiest psalm in the entire Psalter. It begins on a sad note, but unlike all of the other psalms, it also ends on a sad note, where the psalmist says, darkness was my best friend. My friends, what I learned from the structure of the book of Psalms is that Whatever space you are in as a follower of Jesus Christ, whether it be filled with praise, filled with gratitude, which I hope it is, or at times filled with despair and questioning, if it's honest questioning that you have before God, God is interested, and God sanctions it by, by, by including it in this ancient hymn book. So that's the first application. And I want you to know that whatever you're feeling this afternoon, whether it be upbeat or downbeat, that there's a place in the hymn book for you and your situation. And it's God's way of saying, it's okay. I understand. Life has high points. Life has low points. The second point having to do with the structure of the book of Psalms has to do with what I call the bi-directionality of the Psalms' divine inspiration. That's quite a mouthful. But it's really easy to explain. Think about it for a minute. We just read Psalm 73. Who wrote that? An individual uh, who was uh, from the family of Asaph, uh, a Levite, a priest, who was uh, flirting with the temptation to envy the wicked and maybe even wander away from his faith. In other words, this portion of the word of God was written by a human being, and it was directed to God. But we know because it's in the canon of the Bible that it is also the word of God given to us. It's bi-directional. The words of this individual, in other words, God was saying, as he was saying it, the way you put it is the way I want it to be. And what you have said out of your own inclination is the word of my Holy Spirit to the synagogue and the church. Now, those of you who have any um, background in psychology, which I think probably everybody does, I date to the time when I was brought up in a house where uh, it was sort of pre-psychological. My parents would say, sticks and stones may break your bones, but names will never hurt you. Just don't worry about all those bad things that people were saying. But now we know with a psychological consciousness that those feelings that we have are real, and you can't get rid of them. The feelings that you have are genuine. And so what the book of Psalms is doing, in effect, I think, is it's highlighting the fact that God is like a therapist. <laughs> 
I don't know that you've ever had the experience of coming to somebody, a good friend, and you just pour your heart out. You just say, I am just feeling so rotten right now. And you go on this big rant. And then you might be tempted to say to your friend, oh, thank you. And the friend says, I didn't do anything. You say, yes, you did. You listened and you were there. Well, God takes this process one step further. And he says, what you said, I sanction and I enshrine with the authority of my Holy Spirit. And of course, in the providence of God, it is rendered infallible in a way. And it's, it's included in the canon in a way that, that transcends the limitations of the individual. So in other words, I think that God was really the first sensitive psychotherapist and allows our speeches to him to be sufficient, to be his word back to us and to his people. So those are two encouraging words from the book of Psalms as a whole. And as we go through our series, we're going to be sort of stopping in and checking in on these things from time to time. So two things to appreciate the variety of Psalms, no matter where you're at, God is there. And the bi-directionality of the Psalms, the way that the, he's human being put it was sufficient for God. That is best illustrated, by the way, in Psalm 22. Psalm 22 was written by an individual who was suffering the same things that Jesus later suffered. And Jesus, when he was, um, in, in, and the, the Son of God, when he was incarnate in the person of Jesus, he lived out Psalm 22. And when he was hanging on the cross, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was taking the words of a human being that were directed to God, and he was halfway between heaven and earth. And he was hanging on the cross. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But at the same time, he's the incarnate son of God who is saying these things. And he's saying these things in part on our behalf. And so this is well illustrated in the case of Psalm 22, where Jesus, the God man, takes the words that were originally those of a man. And, he is, and as God, he echoes them as the God man who takes our sin upon himself and dies on our behalf. Let's turn now and look a little bit further at Psalm 73. I want to say, in, in, a, in, in essence, what's written as the subject and the compliment. I, I like to be as clear as you possibly can, because there's an old saying that a, a mist in the pulpit is a fog in the pew. In other words, if there's any lack of clarity on the part of what the preacher's saying, the people in the pews don't have any idea. So a mist in the pulpit is a fog in the pew. So here's exactly what I want to say. Two ways to respond to the lure of life on easy street. And here's what I think the psalm is saying. It's on your outline. You want to respond. You could respond with eyes on it from your own perspective now, which results in envy, despair, cynicism, and doubt. Or better, the second half of the psalm, you could look at it with eyes on it, that is the life on easy street, from God's perspective later which will lead you to a renewed gratitude for the gift of God's eternal presence. That's the psalm in a nutshell. Let me go back for one last time to the structure of the book of Psalms in relation to Psalm 73. I've already said that Psalm 73 is at the middle of the book of Psalms, but it's also at the beginning of book three of the Psalms. And in book three, there is a crisis that unfolds. Psalms 73 to 89, which occur in the middle of the Psalter, are exploring the dark side of the world. 
Um, a problem is brewing that is going to end at the end of book three with the apparent death and destruction of the Davidic covenant. And between Psalm 89 and Psalm 72, which just came before it, is Psalm 73. And Psalm 73 comes on the, on the heels of what book two ends with. And book two ends with this over-the-top proclamation about the reign of God's son from one end of the, from one end of the world to the other. And so there's an affirmation of the scope of the Messiah's reign. It's a Psalm of Solomon, who was a son of David, and it says his reign is going to extend from one border to the other. And it's almost as though now that we come to Psalm 73, someone comes along and says, oh, wait a minute, I that sounds awfully, too, that sounds a little too good, doesn't it? I mean, think about it for a minute. So Psalm 73 is our great sort of midpoint, think about it for a minute, psalm and of course it's not telling us to be cynical but it's warning us that cynicism is possible that doubt and despair are real things and who among us has not done this you know you give up a high-paying job maybe to work with a charity or to work with an organization that you think is ethical or work with an organization that you really feel that god has called you to and it's it's not as high paying as the others you look over your shoulder and you see these other people prospering they are resting sweet on easy streets, trips to Europe on cruises, um, big houses, luxurious cars, uh, whatever they want they can get. And here you are doing your Christian thing, and it's getting a bit difficult. This was the dilemma of the psalmist. He says, as for me, my feet nearly gave way, my steps, slips, steps nearly spilled. I want you to notice in uh, the third paragraph, verses 4 to 12, what got the psalmist in trouble. The psalmist's stumbling block was that he began to focus on those other people. And he looked over there and he said, whoa, they are doing really well. And uh, he's actually, the grass is greener than, than it really was because he, he talks about them as though they have no problem. Their, their bodies are fat. When they die, they, they, they have no afflictions. They don't have any troubles at all. Pride is their necklace. Violence is a garment. Their eyes bulge from fat. Conceits infiltrate their heart. And my famous line, or my favorite line from this is in verse 9, a wonderful piece of poetry. They place their mouth in the heavens while their tongue treks the earth. I don't know how that works, but you get an idea of arrogance, of outspokenness, where someone is launching an assault on heaven while wanting to have everything in the world at the same time. There's also a cynicism that is rampant in our own culture that we see in verse 13. They say, how is it that God knows? Is there knowledge with the Most High? Is there really a God there who's looking out and for whom it matters whether you live an ethical life or not? I don't see that kind of evidence. How do you know that there's a God who cares? I doubt that there is, say, the, uh, the, um, the godless um, secular who are at ease. And so the state of the wicked, as described by the psalmist at the end of verse 12, is, so these are the wicked, ever at ease, stockpiling prowess. Foucault would be glad to know that the word is actually stockpiling power. Here are people who are grabbing power and who are exploiting it. Well, this is the effect it had on the psalmist, and this is the effect that it would have on you too if your perspective is to have eyes on the lure of life on Easy Street from your perspective now, to look at them 
You're going to envy, you're going to despair, you're going to become cynical, and you're going to doubt. And so at the top of page two, when it comes to verse 13, the psalmist wallows in his doubt. This is the effect that it's had on him. Surely in vain did I keep my heart pure and wash my hands in innocence. All day long I have been plagued. I've been punished every morning. And then he says, basically, in verse 15, had I decided to speak my mind, I would have betrayed the circle of your friends, O God. I mean, if Glenn had asked me to give my testimony when I was feeling like this, I would have got up there and just kind of unloaded on everybody, and people would have thought, oh my, this isn't very edifying. It's like you're betraying God. That's what he felt like. Now comes the turning point. The turning point comes in verses 16 and 17. He confesses his enigma, his ignorance. In verse 16, when I tried to reckon intelligently about this, it seemed a trouble to me. It seemed an enigma to me. I couldn't figure it out. A lot of wisdom in that. We can't figure out the world in the way that we understand it. There's a lot in our life that we don't understand. But here came the answer in verse 17. Until I entered the dwelling places of God, where I resol resolved to discern their end. Their end. The psalmist goes to church, and he has a moment when he's reflecting on life before God, and he's no longer looking at those people for a moment, but he's in the presence of God, reflecting upon what he should be, that is God, and God speaks to him. And God says to him, in effect, and God says to you and me, consider their end. I once heard a preacher say this, and it was very true, that you will never see a U-Haul behind a hearse. You're in that hearse, you're just wearing your best suit that somebody put on you. You can try and be buried with your 1956 T-Bird if you want to, but it looks awful goofy and you're just going to look silly and the thing's going to rot. You can't take it with you. I was amazed the other day to see a picture of um, a woman who was known for being a, a fabulously beautiful um, in her 80s. And you just kind of think, whoa. I mean, things change. The end isn't good. And from an eternal perspective, the end isn't very good either. And so the psalmist has re reoriented himself and now has a new way of looking at it with eyes on life on easy street from God's perspective later on. This is what he found. When I resolved to discern their ending, he then repents of his own attitude before I was a clueless moron, a brute beast before you. And he says, surely you beset them with flattery. You make them fall to deceptions. How quickly are they destroyed? How quickly money disappears? How quickly beauty fades? Swept away wholly by terrors. And he says, it's almost like these beautiful people are like, you, you dream about them, or God dreams about them, and then you wake up and you realize, oh, wait a minute, that was just like a little figure in my dream. And, and they're not there anymore. That's the way it is with people who try to fill their lives with things rather than with God. And it's a temptation that faces us as well. And it's such a strong temptation that in the middle of the book of Psalms, we're given a message here that says, watch out, this can happen to you. You can become envious. The prosperity of the wicked. It says when you look at it from an internal perspective, it's a mirage. 
Now look at verses 23 to 26. This is where the psalmist has reoriented himself. And you'll notice that for the first time, he is no longer comparing himself to them, but he's in fellowship with God. He says, surely I am with you always. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you receive me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? With you, I now desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, it says in verse 26, but God is the rock of my heart and my inheritance forever. He has found his treasure. And he's feeling silly about how he looked for it in the rearview mirror in the form of BMWs on his tailgate. And now he looks and he sees that the person who's sitting beside him in the driver's seat is an eternal God who's going to be with him forever. And so the lesson in sum is this, my friends, surely those who keep their distance from you will perish. You finish off those all, all who are false to you. As for me, literally it's nearness to God is my good. Nearness to God is my good. And then in the last verse, as though he's learned very well, he uses three names for God. These, the only other time when he's called out to the Lord is once, about halfway through when he says, Lord. But now he says, as for me, it's good to be close to God. I have made the Lord, Yahweh, my strong enclave to proclaim your works. And he's back to the mission of the Great Commission. My friends, there's a warning here. And it's one that we all feel. The lure of life on easy street compared to a life that you and I might be facing where we wonder how ends are going to meet. We wonder if we're really being sucked into this whole religion thing, looked at from an eternal perspective. And my friends, who can doubt this? The wealthy end up in the same place as anybody else in the grave. And after that, it's a matter of how do you stand before God? What does eternity look like? And the psalmist says, don't be bamboozled by the lure of the wealthy. But recognize the long-term perspective and invest in what's eternal. It was the martyr missionary Jim Elliott who said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And in his case, that was his life. Be thou my vision, not be all else to me, save that thou art. Thou and thou only, first in my heart. I ever with thee, and thou with me, O Lord. Or, since we're singing from a hymn book that's a bit different, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Amen.